turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, to that spot that Linus just quoted. And uh, while you're turning there on the screen, you're going to see Acts chapter, two, uh, Acts chapter 10, excuse me, verse 36, uh, which has been part of the last two weeks' messages, and it ties in deeply to this week's theme. And by the way, if any of you kids uh, have not done the bingo thing, we have a bunch of bingo sheets out there right now. And if you get it right, I'm just saying, I've got a few things that might, you know, so, uh, yeah, that's in case I get hungry up here. No. Um, so just, yeah, there is chocolate. So, hey, hey, I said, I said kids, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> oh, goodness. So in this verse, Peter refers to the word that he, that's God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And Peter spoke these words to introduce his message of repentance and salvation through Christ. And we, we looked at the rest of the message last week. But this morning, though, let's read a bit deeper into what Peter says here. Uh, first, look, look at who Peter is talking about, okay, and how he refers to him. Jesus is such a wonderful name. You know, the Hebrew is, is Yeshua. Um, we, we translate the Hebrew word into Joshua. And, and the word Yeshua means, it's, it's, if we were to, to spell it out in English, it would be Y apostrophe S-H-U-A. And that is a shortened form of Yahweh saves. So Jesus literally means the Lord saves. The Greek word is Yesu, and that's where we get our word uh, Jesus. And then the title Christ is a really powerful word coming directly from the word that means anointed in Greek. Uh, which is Christu. So it's Yesu Christu in Greek, and it's Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew. And, and, and this is, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Okay, I just want to just put that out there um, for clarity's sake. It was the title that was applied to him by the Jewish disciples because they knew that he was the Messiah who was to come. But for clarity's sake, the Holy Spirit led Peter to elaborate, and, and maybe that was for the sake of his present audience, or maybe it was for us too. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord of all is a revealing truth, because the only being who could be considered truly Lord of all is God. And on top of that, whether Peter intended it or not, when he referred to the Word that God had sent into the world, I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit was pointing to a truth that, that hadn't been written down yet. You know, because when we think of, of the word, I think of John's gospel, you know, in, in verse 1. Uh, when we think about the word that God sent to Israel, our first thought might be the message itself that's sent through, through his prophets. But those of us who've been blessed to read the scriptures can see a connection to the very person of Christ himself. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God sent His Word incarnate into the world. And why? His reasoning is summarized beautifully in, in, in the phrase, Good news of peace. And just these four words, good news of peace, we're able to, to hear the heart of God as he expresses himself uh, to us. And, and, you know, good news brings joy, right? 
When you hear good news, it makes you happy. It makes you excited. And the good news itself is all about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. Peter himself, in his first letter to the churches, wrote of Jesus, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And Paul explains why our faith produces such joy. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. As we read last week, Peter goes on to proclaim the message to a family of Gentiles, Cornelius' family, who then received the Holy Spirit in power. But Peter was certainly not the first person to proclaim this message. You know, as we, as we backtrack through the Bible last week, we, we saw that each of the statements about Jesus were promised and were foretold by, by his, his prophets in the Old Testament, hundreds of years prior to his birth. And that's some solid evidence that God's been in charge of this whole thing, right? This whole time, God's been in charge of it. Definitive proof of God's faithfulness when we look back and we see how his promises have been fulfilled. But how do you think, how tough do you suppose it was for the people of Israel around, say, 5 B.C.? Because for those of you who don't know, uh, approximately 400 years had passed since the word of the Lord had last been recorded through one of his prophets. So let's put that in perspective, okay? America declared independence from Great Britain 245 years ago. This past Thanksgiving, uh, and I made a big deal of it, so you might remember this, that was the 400th year anniversary of the first Thanksgiving that the, the, the pilgrims se uh, celebrated, not separated, the pilgrims celebrated here. And so the last time that God had definitively spoken to his people through a prophet was as long ago for them as the Mayflower was to us. It's a long time. And still, no Messiah. You know, they, they had been dominated as a nation by a tyrannical government that was taxing and regulating the stuffing out of them. And I'll bet some of them had probably given up on God's promises at this point. But others, others still believed, but they didn't think they were ever going to see it fulfilled in their own lifetime. And either way, it was, it was a pretty dark period in history for the nation of Israel. But it was into that darkness that God sent a great light, Jesus, our joy, our salvation, and our peace. So with Acts 10.36 serving as both an, an introduction and, and kind of to, to swoop us in here, um, let's go backwards around 40 years from when this, this passage in Acts was written to a chilly night on a Judean countryside where a group of shepherds is tending their flock. Okay. Some of them were, were probably resting, you know, while others were, were keeping watch for predators. The fire's low, still producing warmth. You know, people probably kind of huddled around it. There's crickets chirping, the occasional bleat of a lamb, you know, that's been separated from its mama. I mean, hopefully you can kind of put yourself there in your mind space. And suddenly this, this angel of the Lord appears, and he has this incredible message. And I'd like to read it again, this time for the English Standard Version, which has, has it's a, there's a very notable difference. Uh, from the King James Version that Linus quoted, and we will talk about it um, in a bit. But this is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, 
Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is such an amazing message. You know, there, there are multiple declarations here made by angels, and they take the form of four sentences. Um, the longest of the sentences, I think, was, was more specifically for the shepherds, you know, the sign of the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. But I believe the other three sentences remind us of who Jesus is to us. And so this time of year, we might, we might need the reminder. So we're going to go in order. First, the angel says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You ever notice how often angels say, fear not? I mean, it, 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 just about every time they show up, right? You know, by the way, if, you, if you've seen the meme that's floating around the claims that the Bible says, fear not, 365 times, once for every day of the year, that is false, okay? So if you're one of those, those folks that likes to, to, to forward stuff, check it first, um, before you send it forward. But, but it's still worth noting the Bible says it a lot. And it, it's a common statement from the angels because apparently angels are terrifying. You know, they're not cute little fat babies with their diapers and their, you know, that's not how that works, okay? They're terrifying. When people see them, it scares them, okay? So the, the shepherds are filled with great fear, but the angel said, fear not. Why? Because well, he's not there to destroy them. You know, he's there to give them good news of great joy. And, and who's that for? Who's the good news for? Say it out loud, Dana. All. Good news of great joy for all people. The angel said, it's not just for, for the nation of Israel. It's not, you know, it, it, it's for all people. And it's interesting here. There, there's more than one word for people in Greek. And one of them is, is a more particular word. It's like, like when you say, you know, see that row right there? That's my people. You know, that, that's one way of saying it. Or even the people that you come from, you know, your, your, uh, your nation or whatever. But this word that's used here is more general in application. Okay? And it, act, it's, it means people in general. And on top of that, the word panta in Greek is used, which, which means all. Okay? So this is, this is certainly not just good news for the Jews. It's good news for everybody. Everybody. It's good news for the world. Good news for the world. There's certainly a scriptural precedent that the Lord was going to do something for the nations, not just the nation of Israel. Okay? In fact, the, the two scripture readings this morning said this very thing. Right? Early in the first reading, the, the psalmist writes, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. It sounds like he's quoting from uh, all the way back in Numbers, right? Numbers 6, 24. Um, but he goes on to say, that your way, God, your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In the second reading, which was from Isaiah 12, contained this. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all 
the earth. So, once again, God's faithfulness is made clear by the fact that he does what he says he's going to do. Although the, the nation of Israel, they didn't have a full understanding of the offer of salvation. You know, but, but God wasn't unclear on it. You know, in hindsight, we see that his plan all along was to bless the nations of the world through Jesus. And it, it certainly is a message that brings great joy. Jesus is our joy. Next, what did the angel say? He said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, we've already briefly touched on the meaning of the, the word Christ, the title Christ, meaning anointed, and Lord being a reference to his divinity. But what about the word Savior? I mean, how would that title have been understood? It, it's an interesting word, Savior. You know, we, we Christians automatically apply that word to Jesus because that's how we've come to know him, right? Most of us came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But to ancient Israel, that word wasn't as specific. In fact, we see it used multiple times in the Old Testament, you know, to, to refer to someone that God sent uh, to rescue his people from a particular enemy. We see it a lot in the book of Judges. Um, there's a, our English Bibles usually in the Old Testament translate the word that uh, that's, would be Savior. In the Greek, it's translated as deliverer in those contexts, and maybe that's to avoid confusion, right? So we don't mix, get mixed up and we think there's all kinds of saviors. You know, there's one holy Christ Savior, Jesus. But there are many deliverers that God sent in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew idea of a deliverer or a savior is different from what it means to us. Okay, like, like we, might, we might think of someone who works for Uber Eats or, or DoorDash or something like that as a deliverer, right? But, but the ancient Jew would have a very specific idea of what a deliverer was. Maybe, maybe the closest English word that I can think of would be hero, or maybe even superhero. I mean, it, it was a really powerful word. That's how the ancient Jews would, would interpret deliverer or savior. They would have pictured some powerful man that, that would defeat the Romans and bring about a new era of, of, of Israel's prominence on the world stage under some Davidic king. That would have been their view. But see, that's not what they were going to get at least not in his first incarnation. But they did, they did know, they did understand, at least in a rudimentary way, that salvation had come to God's people. Now, again, when we think of salvation, most of us Christians immediately think of being saved, right? I mean, we, we think of like, like in the sense that we're saved from hell by grace through faith, and that's true, but that's not the first thing these shepherds probably thought. I mean, just as the word that's translated Savior literally means deliverer, the concept of salvation means being delivered or saved from some oppressive state, whether it was an, an illness or an enemy or a circumstance. To be saved meant to be liberated. It meant, it meant to be made whole. And honestly, that, that's what it means to us too, but we usually focus on being saved from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. And it would be good for us to recognize and to rejoice in the fact that we are also set free from sin's dominion. We're set free from its power. We don't have to be captives to sin. And we're, we're liberated from its hold over our lives and we're made whole uh, by the sanctification of God's spirit in us. But anyway, uh, back to the shepherds for a moment. Part of the reason... 
that they would have had a more temporal idea of what a savior would look like was based on their prevailing tradition, which was that the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament were about this human leader that would come in and rule with an iron fist. And, you know, being, being told by the angel that the Savior was going to be born in the city of David, that would have been exciting for the shepherds, even if, even if he hadn't added that the child was going to be the Christ. And the reason is, is they had heard the Messiah was going to come from the line of David for literally centuries. Like they'd been believing this all along. So growing up, on any Sabbath, these guys might have heard, a, 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 in the synagogue, they might have heard Psalm 132. It says, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That's, that's from the word mashok, okay? Messiah, Christ. The Lord spoke to David, or swore to David, a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. I will make a horn to sprout for David. The word horn means power. Often it's, it's translated into royalty. Uh, or a royal kind of power. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. Again, Mashok, Messiah, Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is Psalm 132, and for a religious Jew, this sort of passage would always have been seen as pointing to the coming Messiah. But there were others that might not have been as readily apparent to them. For example, one of our favorites, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, from this side of the Advent, we might, we might wonder how that could have been any more obvious, you know, as a reference to the Messiah. But in, in, in the context it was written, this passage would have been less shocking because there, there is no Hebrew word that specifically means virgin. Okay, the word there is Alma, and that could have been translated as, as young maiden. And even today, many Orthodox Jews believe that passage was only fulfilled in Isaiah's son. Okay, but Matthew's gospel makes it clear, very clear, that this passage had a future fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew wrote his gospel for his fellow Jews in order that they might believe that, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And so in this short passage, he ties those two concepts together and the, of the Messiah being the lineage of David, okay, and also of him being divine and born miraculously. Um, listen, this is after Joseph discovered Mary is pregnant and he knew that, that the baby wasn't his. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Again, Yeshua, Yahweh says. For he will save his people from their sins. I mean, th this is a huge revelation. Because, yes, the Jews were awaiting their Messiah, but they were expecting to get delivered from the Romans. You know, they, that was way down there on God's to-do list. Far more important was that God would deliver his people from the power and the penalty of sin. And Matthew continues, all this took place, listen, this is so cool, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, th there's so many reasons that this is beautiful, but for one, there, there is a word a Greek word specifically for virgin, okay? There wasn't one in Hebrew. There is one in Greek. What kind of baby is a virgin going to give birth to? 
It's going to be a legit miracle baby, guys. Okay? This is a true miracle baby in the absolute highest possible sense. And the meaning of Emmanuel is just mind-blowing. God with us? There's probably a lifetime of sermons that could be preached out of those three words. God with us. What an amazing truth. That our Savior, Christ the Lord, God with us, went from a throne in heaven to a feed trough in a cave in order to do what we could not do for ourselves. And that is to save us. Jesus, our salvation. Your church, what, what is the proper response to such a marvelous blessing? Well, what do the angels shout? Glory to God in the highest. Right? Amen and amen. You know, glory to God for his, his incredible love and for the mercy and the grace that he just lavishes on us. You know, giving us joy, giving us salvation through Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Did you notice anything different between that and what uh, Linus said? It's the end there, isn't it? You know, the difference is based on the fact that there are different ancient manuscripts that contain different cases of the Greek word for goodwill or pleasure. And I, I don't really want to bore you with, with the details. I just want to very quickly explain which version I prefer and why. Okay? I believe the translation in our ESV is preferable here and, and to the one in the King James for two reasons. Okay? One, the manuscripts that the ESV are based on are older than the manuscripts that the translators of the King James had when it was written. And secondly, I think the rest of Scripture supports the idea that the kind of peace being referred to here is not universal. I'm going to explain why as we go, okay? But to sum up this last statement by the angels, on earth there is peace for those who are favored in the eyes of God. Now I want you to pause there a second, okay? Ask yourself this question. Am I favored in the eyes of God? Ask yourself. Am I favored in the eyes of God? If you have repentant faith in Jesus Christ, then that is directly correlated to being someone with whom God is pleased, someone on whom his favor rests. So maybe you're wondering then, well, where's my peace? Because maybe you don't feel particularly peaceful at the moment, right? I know for some, some folks it gets worse even at this time of year. And, and, you know, where's my peace? That's a fair question. But I want to encourage you to listen carefully to the promises of God that were fulfilled through Christ and recognize four different ways that we experience peace in him. Okay? Four different ways. First, because of Jesus, there is peace for God's people. There is peace for God's people. And, and, and this is what most of us probably think of when we picture peace. You know, it's kind of life in free flow. You know, it's, it's wholeness. It's lacking nothing good, experiencing nothing evil, uh, an absence of strife, you know, no stress, just peace. Well, there, there's good news and bad news about that. I'm going to give you the bad news first because that's how I prefer to hear it. <laughs> um, of the four ways that we can experience peace, this is the one that we are most likely to see only in small glimpses until the day that Jesus returns. And yet, 
it's still a promise from God. It's a promise from God. We read this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. You know this passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Sincere question. Is there anyone besides Jesus Christ who could be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy? Nope. Big note, okay? Uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That means that God is passionately driven to create a, a complete and total, total culture of peace. That is his passion. For complete peace. So is it going to happen? Man, I'm glad one of you is awake. Is it going to happen? Yes, 100% it's going to happen. Why? We know this because God said so. But it hasn't happened yet. No, and it won't in this world. It's not going to happen in this world. Not perfectly. Not until Christ returns. We, we will catch slivers of it. Echoes. But until all of the enemies of the Lord have been made his footstool, you know, we're still going to deal with unrest. However, knowing that peace is coming... That, that's a reason to thank God, you guys, and enjoying, enjoying the times of peace that He does provide. We, we should take pleasure in those moments. You know, and, and we should rejoice in those, those times with thanksgiving. In fact, gratitude and joy are, are really, that, that's part of, of how we are able to experience another type of peace that Christ offers. Because um, frankly, you guys, you understand this. We have literally no control over what happens in the world, you know? We have some control over the things that we can think and the things that we do, but we have no control over the world around us, and we can only enjoy external peace temporarily, but Jesus provides peace within His people. He provides peace within us. It's an inner peace that comes from our relationship to Him because He is our shepherd. You know, there's, there's another wonderful prophecy um, that we often read at Christmas time. It's found in the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5. Um, it says, But you, O Beth Bethlehem, boy, this is a tongue twister, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You know, once again, is there anybody who could be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise except Christ? No, no way. Of course not. But this ruler is not a tyrant. He's a kind and gracious king. Micah continues, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. There, there's such deep security that we can feel from being under the care of a good shepherd. 
You know, we who belong to Jesus, we know that he is over all things. And we know that he has already overcome the world. And so our peace is in him. It's not in our external circumstances. It can't be. It's in who he is. You know, we, we can have peace on the inside despite what's happening on the outside because we know that he is with us. You know, the, the 23rd Psalm is, is such a beautiful picture of the peace that we can have through faith in the Lord who is our shepherd. His faithfulness is all-encompassing even when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, so to speak. You know, his, his presence is enough to provide peace within us. And really, this is so much more important than outer peace. Those of you who, who like me, who deal with anxiety and, and how that can lead to depression, you know that even on occasions that we have outer peace, we may still struggle within our soul. There's a, a fellow, he was a Greek philosopher that lived about the time of Jesus, and he, and he said this, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. He's right, no earthly emperor can do that. But we have a king of kings who can. Jesus can give us peace. The third way that we experience peace that Christ provides is among his people. For his people, within his people, and among his people. Consider the unity that's created through the body of Christ that transcends all of the, the worldly divisions. It transcends language and, and skin color and intellect, wealth, any other physical standard. I mean, the Apostle Paul, uh, he uses the example of the barrier that was used to separate Jew and Gentile, which Christ annihilated in his flesh. You know, if you, if you look at Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, by the way, most of us, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that's not a happy description, right? But now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. I know that can be a little confusing because we're not in an era anymore where there's so much tension, I think, between Jew and Gentile. But what he's saying, listen, the body of Christ is one body. It's one body. You know, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of people there that look nothing like us. And that's okay. They won't sound the same, you know. It's going to be eye-opening, probably, for a lot of folks. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Bible says. The body of Christ is one body. And if there is another person who has received 
the spirit of, of Christ by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are their brother or sister, and they are yours. I had a conversation with somebody the other day. Um, in fact, it was, so, it was somebody from Shiloh. Um, this, you, may, you might remember Erin. They used to go to Shiloh Place. I ran into her at Walmart, and she's like, I know you. And I was like, hey, I know your, I, I knew her, the top half of her face because she was wearing a mask. <laughs> I had her pull down her mask, and, and we talked for a little while. And it's just amazing to sit there and be like, there are so many differences between me and this young lady. And, and you know, the way, probably the way we view the world, we might vote differently, et cetera. But you know what? Somebody who's just like me that doesn't know Christ that person has nothing on the relationship that I have with Aaron, whom I barely know because we are connected by the Holy Spirit of God. One body. One. One body. We are family. I'm sitting here going, don't sing it, don't sing it, don't sing it. <laughs> You're welcome. God bless you. This, this great privilege. I want you to hear this because I think sometimes we forget that every good thing, this, this hit me lately. I was reading a book and, and somebody mentioned this and, and now it's, it keeps coming back in my mind. Every good thing that we have, not just our salvation, was purchased by the blood of Christ. Do you understand that? So this privilege of being a part of this, this one body, the unity that we have as Christians was bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is that blood which purchased our salvation, but that's not all. That's not all it did. Paul says right there that Jesus' blood purchased this unity. So please don't forget that. You know, let's, let's not waste the sacrifice by looking down on other Christians or, or, or treating them as less than because maybe we don't belong to the same group, okay? And I'm preaching to myself here, okay? Finally, church, the, the fourth way that we experience the peace of Christ, and th this is the one that makes all the others possible, is that God provided peace with his people. Peace between God and us. Continuing in Ephesians 2, Paul says that Jesus reconciled us, both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body. How did he do it? It says, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who who were near. You know, so, so for anyone who may not understand, there was hostility, okay? Not just between, you know, men and men, but between men and God. And Jesus brought it to an end. Jesus buried the hatchet. He brought it to an end by dying in our place in order that a just and righteous God could forgive the sins of his people and make peace with us. And so, if you are one of his people, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have these four realities. Peace with God, and because of that, peace with one another. And thanks to those blessings, peace within yourself, and one day we will have peace about us forever and ever. And I look forward to that, don't you? It's going to happen. It's going to happen for those who are in Christ Jesus. It sounds awesome. Anyway, um, folks, listen, that's what Jesus provided for you and me. So cling to Jesus, our joy, our salvation, and Jesus, our peace. Thank God for his indescribably wonderful gift of Jesus. We're going to, uh, we're going to, I guess, have a, an invitation. Um, and... Uh,
we already have the, the baptistry warmed up because we got one person that's that's down to do it today. But if anybody else wants to, you're welcome to come up too because we're good to go. It's warm. <laughs>